The endless stream of incoming emails, texts, notifications, tasks to add to the to-do list, it's enough to make anyone feel a bit anxious. And that's just work. Whether it's being overdiagnosed or just better understood, the anxiety conversation is everywhere right now, and for good reason. It cripples your ability to concentrate, it ruins your sleep, and it scatters your mind. So how do you overcome it? Or better yet, how do you turn it into a superpower? Sarah Wilson has done just that, and she's on a crusade to help others do the same. She's also a devoted climate advocate and the woman behind the I Quit Sugar movement. So what's she currently doing to manage her anxiety while juggling such an overwhelming schedule? My name is Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm an organizational psychologist and the founder of behavioral science consultancy Inventium. And this is How I Work, a show about how to help you do your best work. Like me, I have always seen Sarah Wilson as a bit of an experimenter. And I know that over the years, she's tried all sorts of things to manage her anxiety. So I wanted to know what she's currently doing regularly to manage it. Oh, gosh. Um, Look, I sort of manage my anxiety in quite a chaotic way, which I know goes against all the rules, but I have worked out that I need to be able to read the situation. That said, I do have a morning routine and that's probably the thing that's the most consistent in my life Um, and it's almost a non-negotiable. So my morning routine is to essentially get up and do exercise straight away. So I do some form of exercise. This morning I did weights for 15 minutes because it's raining. Um, and But generally I will try to get outside. So I'll just go for a run. I'll jump in the ocean and do some, you know, do a lap across Bondi where I live. I try to get outdoors. I don't think about it too much. I just go. And even if it's for 15, 20 minutes, it's enough. I then get back and I meditate. And I meditate reluctantly. I'm not zen about it. I'm slightly like, oh, I just want to get on with my day. I'm impatient about it, but I still do it. And I know it works. I suppose the other thing is I generally try to exercise again later in the day. Like exercise is the thing that makes a really big difference to me. I don't own a car and that's in part to force me to either ride a bike or to walk everywhere. And I have to say that has been my lifesaver. Movement, engaging with my body is the thing that really modulates my anxiety best, I would say. And then the other thing, oh, and hiking. So exercising in nature, I do that as often as I can. Many of you might know of these sort of studies in and around forest bathing, the idea of exercising in nature, just moving in nature. There's something like 40,000 studies that have been done to show that the body responds so incredibly to that idea of, of literally just walking in a natural environment. Now, you talk about something called soul nerding. Can you tell me what that is exactly? Yeah. um, Look, it it came from another philosopher and he was referring to the fact that there's traditional religion, then there's sort of contemporary um, spirituality that draws from Eastern traditions. And then he sort of said, look, but there's a third way and it's sort of soul nerding. Soul nerding is the practice of essentially reading or absorbing yourself in art forms created by others who were suffering 
similar conditions or going through a particular period in history that's similar to our own. Um, so it's generally prose or poet, uh, beautiful prose or poetry. It might be beautiful classical music. It's anything that can elevate the spirit, you know what I mean? And, and to treat it as something that you go and study, that you delve into, not just because you're interested, but as a way, as a form of spiritual practice of connecting back in. And I actually find that an incredibly beautiful technique to engage in. You know, sometimes I can get a bit impatient with reading, like, oh, I've got other things to do. But when I absorb myself in a way that's sort of, I suppose, like a spiritual practice where I'm like, I'm doing this to actually connect with the human spirit, it is actually a really wonderful thing. I mean, it's not only that you start to realize you're not alone, you know, Robinson Crusoe in your pain, right? You can see that Virginia Woolf or Rilke or whoever it might be, went through the same human angst. And that makes you feel less alone in your pain, which then in itself enables you to open up and move forward in a more progressive way. But the other aspect of it is that the actual engagement with the pace of some of these beautiful creations slows the thoughts down to that sort of discerning thought pace that is actually most natural and comfortable for us. So, you know, when you read poetry, you can't speed read poetry. Um, you know, I mean, it's the same with when you go to see an art, you know, gallery and you're looking at artwork. Sure. You, I mean, I tend to do speed art cause I'm a very impatient person, but you know, something will capture you and the image will just stick with you. And it'll be like an awareness of the care of the, the brush, brush strokes of the artist, you know? And I think that that's that process that can actually get us so, I think connected back into ourselves, connected into the natural pace of things. Yeah. And so that, yeah, that's, that's soul nerding. I've heard you say that anxiety can be a superpower and I'm curious as to how you put that mindset shift into action when you're right in the, in the heart of something making you really stressed or anxious. Yeah. Well, to the first part of that. Anxiety was deemed something that was quite a special peculiarity throughout history. People who displayed OCD characteristics or bipolar characteristics were often the shaman or the community leaders, the spiritual leaders in various communities because they were sort of deemed to be particularly sensitive and to have this superpower that enabled you know, the community, um, the tribe, the clan to survive. Like it was the OCD person sitting on the outskirts of a clan that could hear the tiger rustling, you know, in the middle of the night. And it was the, the, the bipolar, um, you know, person who would venture over the hill and be brave enough to go into new territory and come back and go, hey, guys, they've invented the thing called the wheel over there. We should get onto it, you know. It, we always needed these sort of quirks. And, you know, the studies have shown that, throughout history and across cultures, you know, these, these types of uh, mental quirks existed in about 1.2 to 1.4% of the population. And, and that still exists today. I think there's some over-reporting and probably some more understanding of a spectrum of disorders that mean that sometimes the numbers are reported as higher. But some people would say that that's, that figure is still consistent today. Now, what that says to me is, oh, there's always meant to be a particular part of the population that are going to have these particular superpowers. Now, what's happened in the last hundred years or so is that we've medicalized these conditions and deemed them problematic. And then 
you know, slapped on a diagnosis, handed over medication to basically eradicate, eliminate these behaviours. And what that's done, of course, is stigmatise the experience so that, you know, I know for myself, you know, I, I grew up believing I had to get rid of my bipolar condition before I could get on with my life right? Before I, my doctor could deem me okay. Now, if we'd flipped the model and gone, okay, this person with bipolar needs to be nurtured and looked after. They're particularly sensitive. However, if they're nurtured, they'll, they're most likely going to go and do some great stuff for humanity. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is something that needs to be recognized. Now, as to the second part of your question, how do I absorb that? Partly by soul nerding, to be honest. I read the works of people who've had similar conditions to me or have just simply been highly sensitive people um, throughout history. And I absorb how they manage to use this condition to create and to expand thought. Um, so that's one thing I do. I mean, I do have to have a conversation with myself regularly to remind myself of the truth of it because, you know, a hundred years plus of this idea that, you know, it's a problem and we've got to get rid of it has had its impact on my brain, you know, and, and my conditioning. I suppose I also have to allow a certain amount of wildness in my life where the extremes of my need to express are able to unfurl, if that makes sense. Because if I try to put the brakes on it too much or if I try to um, suffocate it and eradicate it, 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 it causes even more anxiety. And I say in my book, um, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, that the thing about anxiety today is that we don't just get anxious. We get anxious about being anxious. Then we get anxious about being anxious about being anxious. And then it just dominoes um, exponentially from there. And what I say is we need to learn to do anxiety once. And that practice is really important to me. I say to myself quite regularly, Sarah, you are currently doing anxiety. And what I do is I just allow that to be. And I watch the emotions. I go, okay, now why is that happening? All right. Rather than getting anxious about the fact that I'm anxious, because that then just makes it twice as bad, if not multiples of four, 10, you know, whatever it might be. So that's probably one of the most successful things that I can do. And I generally do it while walking. Like if I'm, if I'm going through that, if I'm starting to feel the anxiety build up, I just put down my computer mouse and I just walk out the door and I'll walk around the block for five, 10 minutes. And that's enough. And I just say to myself, all right, this is anxiety. It's doing its thing. We interpret excitement and anxiety in the same part of the brain. And we often can't tell the difference. So another little thing that I often say to myself is, Sarah, choose to be excited. And quite often my anxiety is because my excitement for life has led me down a path where I'm thro- I've thrown myself into something exciting and I'm legitimately nervous because it's new and it's fresh. But we've been conditioned to go, oh, I'm anxious, um, you know, let's balk at this, you know, remove myself from the edge. And over the years, I've managed to sort of convince myself, remind myself, no, this is just exciting. And don't leave the edge. And as Pima Chodron, the beautiful American Buddhist nun said, the edge is where we're meant to be, right? We're meant to be at our edge. 
But as I say, you know, our culture says, no, withdraw from the edge. You're not meant to feel anxious, you know. And in fact, that means you're not meant to feel excited. And um, so, yes, it's a constant conversation that I'm having with myself to counter the, the dominant discussion around anxiety. I can definitely relate to that. I was aware in my own body that the reaction I would have, say, before giving a big keynote speech or, you know, doing a podcast interview, particularly in the early days of doing how I work, I would feel anxious and my tummy would be churning. And then I noticed that, hang on, that's the same feeling I have when I'm excited about something. And for me, that's been so useful doing that mental reframe of of thinking, oh, no, I'm just excited and I'm pushing myself out of my comfort zone into something that is hopefully going to be really good and have an impact. That's right. But I think also, Mance, and I'll just add to that, like I also think that I, I mean, I get anxious before I do, you know, any kind of public talk, before any of my podcast interviews. And I've all, I almost don't trust myself if I'm not anxious, if you know what I mean, if I'm not feeling that fluttery feeling because it's like it means I don't care, you know, and, and I think that's something that we've got to bear in mind as well. Like, yeah, we're meant to feel anxious about or at least heightened and, and so on about things we care about. Now, something that we have in common is that we are both sugar-free. I have been sugar-free for about eight years. And uh, the big difference is that you led a global movement around (laughs) putting sugar and I did not. Can you talk to me about how in your own life you link what you feed yourself and put into your body with your mental health and just how you're able to, you know, come come to the world every day and come to work? Okay, so I quit sugar, except I also do eat a bit of sugar. Like I'm not, an, I'm not stringent about it and I never was. And that was part of my program in the business was you, you quit for the eight weeks so that your body can completely recalibrate and determine for itself how much sugar it can handle. And really the program was about getting people alive to their bodies and what their bodies needed. And generally most humans find that they can handle between six to nine teaspoons of added sugar a day. I would eat six to nine teaspoons of added sugar most days, you know, in some form or another. But I'm discerning about it because once you know how much sugar is in certain foods, you can't unsee it, can you? And and so you make different kinds of choices. So how do I eat? Um, I'm not saying to do this at home. However, for me, what I've worked out is I eat between two to three pieces of dark 90% chocolate every morning. Like that is my breakfast, usually with a few Brazil nuts. And that I'm just not a breakfast person. I never have been. Breakfast food does not excite me. So I tend to do that. And then around about 11 or 12, I will eat a really big lunch. And I've always eaten lunch like I mean it. None of this like little salad business or, you know, one sushi roll or something like it's, you know, it's a really solid meal. So I work from home, but even if I don't, I always make my lunch. I eat some form of protein. Um, I've got a thyroid condition, which means I find it very difficult to metabolize protein in non-meat products. It's, it's, it's not great, but I get around it by buying set of meat that is um, discounted and I make these big stews. So I've always got these stews that have got lots of vegetables and they max the meat. And then dinner is pretty much the same as lunch. 
Now, a big line of work for you is as a climate advisor and activist. And I know something you're passionate about is is called the missing piece, which is to make the new way more charming than Mm. the old. I love that word, charming. Tell me, how do you do that in practice? Yeah, I think in the climate battle, like we're often just trying to go, can't you see that this is not the right way to do things, you know? And it's just not how the human brain operates. We have to be seduced into new ways and it's all kinds of cognitive biases and dissonances at play there what I've found is yes as you say to to create change we have to make the new way more charming than the status quo so for me I don't try to sort of talk about you know all the sacrifices I make in my life instead I legitimately like because I actually believe it like I try to show that for instance not owning a car is actually joyous because it frees you up you have so much more flow in your life you know I use the example I once spoke at a festival a food and wine festival and the head of the festival she's also a journalist she was interviewing me on a panel I said oh you know isn't it ridiculous these people who drive a car to the gym to go and sit on a stationary bike for an hour then they you know, drive home, have a shower, get into the car again and drive to work. And I'm like, why wouldn't you just ride to work? And she went, oh, my God, you've just described me. I'm that person. And she just, she still contacts me to say I still am reflecting on that. And she actually ended up buying the bike and she rides to work, which is great. But um, it's just sort of like I think a lot of people just need to be shown that this other way of living is actually so much more enjoyable. What are some other examples where you've used charm to change behaviour? Well, I suppose I use a little bit of humour and I also try to use sexy people on campaigns, if that makes sense. Mm. So I did a campaign here in Bondi called Fuck the Cup. We got you know, I think it was in the end between 80 and 100 cafes on board to go takeaway coffee cup free for a week. And so, you you know, you you get together a really cool t-shirt. I got, you know, one of Australia's best graphic designers to design it. And then I got a whole bunch of cool people from around Bondi to wear it. And there's a, you know, some of them cut the sleeves off and turn them into tanks. And so I suppose I do a little bit of that kind of thing if I'm doing a campaign. Like, you know, I think it was Seth Godin sort of taught me this when we were talking about how to shift people's perspective on capitalism. And he said the best way is to have imagery that says, you know, people like us do things like this. And he was actually referring to Harley Davidson. He said Harley Davidson had a massive brand restructure however many years ago and they just got cool people riding Harleys. And you know how, you know, a whole heap of celebrities all of a sudden got into riding Harleys, you know. And so that's sort of what I apply to a lot of the things that I do. I just try to make it look like happy people who look like they've got their, you know, their shit together do things like this, like use a keep cup you know, hike, uh, ride a bike, that kind of thing. And it's just about normalising a different kind of image. I must say, even though I've been on this planet for 45 years, I've only recently discovered the joys of bushwalking. I always like just associated bushwalking with spiders and bugs and things that I don't like. But um, Which is fair enough because there are those. There are those things. <laughs> but um, my goodness, it's uh, it's very, very addictive. One question I have, like I feel like still when I think about, you know, on the weekend maybe going for a bushwalk with my partner, I still feel like, oh, well, I have to factor in 
like lots of travel time because I'm an inner city person and the bush mm-hmm. is out somewhere far, far away. How, how do you encourage people like me to challenge that and go, well, actually, it can be easy, yeah. Yeah, um, well, just enter into some flow, get into some cool flow with it all. So I often take my friends walking and th- these are very car-centric friends and they're like, oh, so, yeah, should we meet at the car park? I'm like, no, we're catching the train. <laughs> like, um, so um, I turn that into the ex- part of the excursion. So, you know, I will go and get my keep cup and I get a coffee um, and I have a certain spot which is near Central Station here in Sydney. I get food for the train and I Saturday and a Sunday, like the trains are not that busy, you know. Um, so part of the fun is getting on a train. The train lines often go sort of through beautiful bushland as they're getting out of there. So most of the cities in Australia have some form of public transport which will head you out into a cool area. Now, if you're driving, you know, I know some cities and areas don't, you know, uh, um, don't have national parks accessible by public transport. So yes, by all means drive, but Turn it into an event. Like if you're going on your own, in, like basically choose a really cool podcast to listen to, preferably yours or mine, Amanda. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, um, you know, enjoy the process of it. Get it. Get your coffee in the car in a, take, you know, a non-takeaway coffee cup and enjoy the process of getting there. It's part of the adventure, like working out on the map, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And what else are you going to do? You know, to quote um, to quote Mary Oliver, what else are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? Like, I mean, I don't know what people do on weekends, but from what I observe, there's a lot of wasting of time. And I think of the amount of time people spend trying to find a car spot in a car park in a shopping mall. <laughs> like that time could be spent going off, you know, getting to a national park. We will be back with Sarah soon and we'll be talking about how she thinks about what she takes on as a work project versus what she thinks about as just a hobby. If you're looking for more tips to improve the way that you work, I write a short fortnightly newsletter that contains three cool things that I've discovered that help me work better, ranging from software and gadgets that I'm loving through to interesting research findings. You can sign up for that at howiwork.co. That's howiwork.co. Something I often ask people about on this show is how their ways of working have changed since COVID. But I think from what I gather for you, it's gone even deeper than just how you work. It's changed the way that you think. Can can you tell me about how the pandemic's changed the way that you think? Everybody had their unique experience. I had a foster child living with me, a teenager who was – you know, going through all kinds of challenges, like, my goodness, what she didn't go through during the lockdown. So she moved in within two weeks. um, (laughs) We went into lockdown together um, with homeschooling, the whole thing. So that was quite unique. But I suppose in many ways it got me to come in close. I think that's probably what it did in terms of my working um, style and the way that I had to live and my expectations. It brought everything in more intimate and granular. And, you know, I had to make, like everybody else, you know, adventures out of, you know, within a five-kilometre radius. And I tell you what, there was not a square inch 
of and, and I live on the coastline, so I got half of that radius, if you know what I mean, because the other half was the ocean. You know, I found like walks that went along, you know, rock outcrops and, you know, I found these really cool places to swim. So I maxed it from that point of view and it was kind of fun, you know, to fill to the rim um, of what I was able to do. But I think in, in general the big takeaway for me is that COVID was the great revealer. You know, it, it was sort of almost like the wound was festering, but COVID tore the Band-Aid off and showed us what was existing there. And, you know, there were sort of nice moments where we all went, we all sort of reverted back to an aspect of our human nature, which is that desire to commune and connect and, and help, right? And we saw elements of that. I've got to say it probably didn't last as long as, I'd like to have seen it and as as long as we all thought it might. Um, ditto with the anti-consuming. Like we all did stop for a bit, you know, because I think that that wound that we saw under there, it actually horrified us a little bit and we actually went, oh, let's be a little bit more the other way for a while. But, of course, you know, the COVID or well, the pandemic started to shift and we all went back to consuming, you know. Um, and, in fact, consumption has gone back to higher levels than before the pandemic, which is frightening. But I suppose, I, I guess we did get an inkling, an insight into it. And I also, you know, I, I interview a lot of people from overseas and I think the impact was much bigger in other parts of the world where it came off the back of austerity measures in some cases, also a financial collapse or at least financial financially tough times that Australia had been cocooned from, although we, we seem to be you know, getting bruised by it now. I think that other cultures, other places in the world did learn a little bit more from it. But yes, you asked me about my my learnings and practices. Yeah, I suppose, yes, that kind of coming in intimate and granular. And you know, you know when you're a kid and or if if you have children, you watch them and you can give them the most fabulous toy, but they'll often find the box more exciting you know, or if they're, if you're sort of at a friend's place and they haven't got toys and the kid just goes and finds a patch of dirt in the back of the backyard, they'll actually create lots of fun. Like they'll max that bit of dirt. You know what I mean? Like, um, they'll make the most of it. I think that's what we experienced. And I certainly experienced it. I had to pivot and do different things and reinvent. And it was, it was good. It was good. It was creative. When I was researching for this interview, it's it's just so apparent that you just have done so many different things in your life that, that fall into the work bucket. And something that got me really curious is how do you know when something that you're interested in is a hobby or if it's your next work project? Oh, um, I don't, I don't have hobbies. Like, um, <laughs> I often say to people, gosh, I wish I had a hobby. But the thing is, I, my hobbies have always turned into work projects. I mean, when I was 12 or 11, I was, um, I, I grew up in the country and I was bored out of my brains. Like it was a drought. There was nothing to do. There wasn't enough money to pay for petrol to go into town ever. So, we did nothing like we just played in, in, in dirt essentially, you know, there's a whole, I had sort of four brothers and a sister 
And I was so bored, but I did get a, a sort of a set of Fimo. You know that modeling clay? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I know it well. <laughs> so I got some Fimo for, for Christmas or something. And I started playing around with it. And I wasn't content to leave it as a hobby. Like I ended up turning it into a business. And I ended up making Toll's House furniture <laughs> for a really bourgeois toy shop in Canberra. And then I started painting. I got also, I used to have some fabric paints. I used to make library bags and I, painted them, you know, and sell them in, 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 this, in two different toy shops, actually. So I've always converted whatever I'm doing. Like my family used to call me the little capitalist, which is hilarious <laughs> um, for anyone who knows me because I rail against it. Like I love earning money. I just then give it away. So I, I suppose, yeah, I don't see a distinction. For me, I'm producing and creating or I'm not. You know, so even when I'm hiking, I'm generating ideas. I quite often hike to actually sort out my head, you know, when I'm trying to work out a project that I'm meant to be doing. So, yeah, I, I've i never delineated. Like I loved writing, so I started just writing for newspapers and eventually I got so annoying they gave me a job, you know, that kind <laughs> of thing. <laughs> um, and when I have big jobs, they tend to take over to the – and I've always had jobs where it's not – I've never had a job which is nine to five ever in my life. When I was editor of Cosmo, you were expected to do evening. That was my social life. Like I had to go to, you know, the launch of a lipstick, you know, or something after work. And and then there was networking that you had to do. And I loved it, to be honest, you know. So, no, I've never delineated. I know some people, I mean, I admire people with hobbies. I love men with hobbies. Like I fall in love with them. I'm like, I just love that sort of passion. But I, yeah, I just haven't ever been that way. Can you tell me more about your your process for, I guess, noodling on problems when you're hiking? Like, is is do, do you predetermine the problem that you want to think about or solve on the hike? Do you have a, a notebook or a dictaphone or something with you? How does that work? Yeah, I often walk with just a piece of ratty paper um, down my bra because I often don't take a backpack. I, I, you know, if it's a three hour under a three hour walk, I'll just hike with just a credit card, a piece of paper, and a pencil down my bra. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and I'll sit down and write, or I will sometimes dictate into my phone, but I don't like doing that kind of break. I don't know. I, I'm a handwriter. I handwrite all of my books first because I just find, again, handwriting goes at the same pace as discerning thought, you know, whereas typing's too fast. I will often have a particular problem. Like sometimes I go for a hike when I am in such a like lost and locked in space in my head and I just cannot solve an issue and I just have to start hiking and about 20 to 30 minutes in all the thoughts are starting to percolate and then some start to seem more beautiful than others they just sort of bubble up to the surface and some of them I grab onto and go yes and when you hike you're in an elevated slightly euphoric state And so if a good thought emerges, it really stands out. Do you know what I mean? Like it's bright and light and intuitively you go, yes, that's the right thing, you know, and then I will write it down. So, you know, lots of creatives throughout history did the same thing. So Nietzsche, he had to write all of his books while walking and he kept a, he had a sort of a walking staff and he had a, 
little hole in the top for his paper and his little pencil that he would keep in there so that he could stop and write. And, um, you know, Vincent van Gogh was the same. There's countless people who had to walk to get their creative thoughts sorted. But, yeah, it's, it's a, I, I, people say to me, oh, how do you go about it? I'm like, don't worry about it. It just works. Like I promise you, if you go for an hour, a, a minimum hour's walk, whatever problem you've got, creative problem, it will just bubble to the surface. Don't worry. It just does. It does its magic. You don't just, just, just walk, just hike, you know? (laughs) Now, Sarah, for people that want to connect with you and consume more of the thinking that you are putting into the world, what is the best way for people to do that? Oh, thank you for that invite. Probably the best place is my Substack newsletter, which is sarahwilson.substack.com. That's sort of, I've got a sort of a free emissions that is once a week. And then once a week, I also do something for the membership community who, and, and, and it's a subscriber model. There's that. And then of course, my podcast, Wild with Sarah Wilson, and then any information on my books. So this one, Wild and Precious Life, and First We Make the Beast Beautiful would be probably most appropriate, but also the I Quit Sugar books. Um, that's on sarahwilson.com or just Google. <laughs> you're very prolific I must say so um, <laughs> easy to find it's because I'm old when you reach oh, a certain whatever. age right your google footprint um, is going to be substantial <laughs> well Sarah it's been such a joy chatting to you thank you so much for your time it was wonderful thanks for for leading the conversation Since recording this interview with Sarah, I went on a mini break with my partner to the Grampians, where we went on some mega bushwalks up some very big mountains. I was reflecting on that weekend and the walking specifically, and I now realize that one of the things I really felt was just completely present for those walks. A couple of the walks were really difficult and every step required focus and undivided attention. And now having been back in Melbourne for a couple of weeks, my mind has quickly returned to that feeling of being busy and a little bit overloaded. So it's made me think about the importance of just finding even a couple of hours to get out into nature, just like Sarah does, to help reduce that noise that I am feeling in my head at the moment. How I Work is produced by Inventium with production support from Deadset Studios. The producer for this episode was Liam Reardon. And thank you to Martin Nimba, who does the audio mix for every episode and makes everything sound so much better than it would have otherwise. See you next time.